It is our privilege this morning to uh, dedicate a child to the Lord. We do this both as families and as a congregation. And so I'd like to ask if uh, Esme Rosenquist would bring her family forward, and we would like to <laughs> we would like to dedicate her. And any of the elders that are present, if you'd join us up here this this morning. This is Esme and Caspian, and Hanson and Marina. This is, <laughs> this is a charge both to the family and to the congregation. Hanson and Marina, do you acknowledge Esme's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? We do. And do you claim God's covenant promises and benefits for Esme, and by faith do you look to the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your children as you do for yourselves? And do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? And do you promise by relying on God's power and grace through the Holy Spirit to live an exemplary life before your children? And do you commit yourself to pray with and for your children to teach them the scriptures, the great articles of our faith in Christ Jesus? And do you promise to use every means provided by God, including the faithful participation in the life of the church, to bring your child up in the, living, to, in the loving discipline of the Lord? This is the charge to the congregation. And do you, the members of this congregation, in behalf of yourselves and the whole body of Christ Jesus, will you assume responsibility with these parents for the spiritual nurture of this child? If so, answer, we will. I moved. <laughs> Do you commit yourself to set a godly example before this child and to provide as far as you are able all that's necessary to the end that this child may one day confess Jesus Christ as her own Lord and Savior? And do you promise to pray for and to and to remember her and to encourage her and her family as they raise their children together to know the Lord Jesus. Amen. As may we now dedicate you to the Lord Jesus who graciously provided you to this family. We as a congregation join in this family to help to raise you to know Jesus Christ that one day you may stand with us before his throne. May your blessing be upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
How about now? Like I was saying, <laughs> I'll see if I can find my place after that interruption. Over the last several decades, uh, nuclear energy has spent the bulk of its time in a non-literal meltdown ever since the Fukushima disaster in 2011. It's triggered a global backlash against nuclear energy. And as a consequence, many countries, including Japan, obviously, and Germany, have been trying to reduce their nuclear footprint. Um, some nations have halted altogether their nuclear development. They've canceled or delayed expansions for the plants. But it, interestingly enough, in the last few years, nuclear energy has really been making a big comeback. It's taken on, if you will, a new glow. At any rate, uh, since 2021, Congress has invested billions of dollars. In 2021, $8 billion was invested by Congress either in nuclear startups or in nuclear uh, energy uh, demonstration projects. And private investigators have likewise been dumping billions of dollars into America's expanding nuclear energy program. Meanwhile, the European Commission has recently announced plans to formally declare nuclear energy to be a green energy. So the whole thing goes back to the idea that people are steering away from nuclear power because they want to go to renewable energy sources, energy sources that are green, that don't have a carbon footprint. So half a dozen countries have been now investing in nuclear power. China, who's the world's biggest uh, producer of uh, carbon dioxide, the biggest carbon emitter, has, has unveiled plans to open 150 new nuclear power plants. That's more than all of the rest of the world combined in the last 30 years. They plan to produce 200 gigawatts of electricity in the next 15 years with nuclear power. And again, the primary reason for that is people are beginning to realize that if they're going to go green, if we're going to be carbon neutral, if we're going to keep the the uh, planet from, from going into uh, global warming, we have to either um, meet those demands through nuclear energy, we've got to advance our nuclear programs. Um, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has outlined four different programs that they're um, pathways to advancing the, our energy needs while not causing more than 1.5 degree increase. So there's four different plans to accomplish that. Three of them involve increasing nuclear energy from between 150% to 500%, and none of them include reducing nuclear energy. And dun, 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 for all the safety concerns about nuclear energy, it's exponentially less damaging than the existing fossil fuel plants. Even if you consider the, the biggest global catastrophe that Chernobyl caused, it's only a fraction of the amount of people who have died by uh, coal-fired power plants while they've been running as designed. Japan's nuclear phase-out has become quite ill-fainted in this post-Fukushima uh, era, and they realized that they need to restart all of the nuclear generators that they took offline after Fukushima if they're going to meet their 
energy needs. Remember several years ago when California decided it was going to go non-nuclear because that was a, a nasty thing to have? And so they included nuclear and all the other things they were shutting down. Recently, according to Wall Street Journal, Governor Gavin Newsom has spearheaded an 11th hour effort to keep the nuclear power plants online, including the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which produces 2,250 megawatts of energy annually. Now, the problem is that, that California has been, per, been experiencing these uh, rolling blackouts, and they realize they can't meet the energy crisis, they can't meet the needs of, of the state as they as they're now have. And so they've advised people to not have their air conditioners set any lower than 78 degrees and to refrain from charging electric vehicles. <laughs> In case you're wondering the irony of that, California has decided they're banning fossil fuel vehicles. They're going to add a million electric vehicles to the power grid. And just imagine what reducing the power grid by 18,000 gigawatts annually is going to do to the power grid in California. Nuclear power in the 1940s and 1950s was considered you know, the, the end of all things. It was going to provide unlimited, cheap energy, and it was, and it was going to produce all the energy that our, that our country was going to need. Well, you know, it actually could, and it would have, except for two minor inconveniences about nuclear power, one of which was radioactive waste, and the other was Chernobyl activities, where every once in a while there's, a, there's a, an accident that discharges nuclear energy. But in spite of these drawbacks, <laughs> nuclear power is making a remarkable comeback. And that leads me to ask a question a similar question about the presence of the Jews. Because like nuclear power, the Jews started out very promising, really well. And then things went badly for them. They had such great promise. They were the, the chosen people, the elect, the covenant people of God. He blessed them. He provided for them. He cared for them. God provided for, through them the Messiah, which they promptly rejected and executed. And then their rejection of their Messiah essentially ended their privileged position as God's covenant people. And then closing the deal in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed during the lifetime, as Jesus predicted, of most of the people who were there listening to him at the time. Since that time, the church has become the people of the covenant. The church has supplanted the covenant people. We've largely taken the place of the Jews as the chosen elect people of God, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So it makes us ask a question. Is God done with the Jews? Has the Gentile church become the church of the new covenant, which completely replaces the J Jewish church, the church of the old covenant? Is there a, a future for ethnic Jews in, in redemptive history. Yeah, Israel has rejected her Messiah, and because of that, salvation has opened up to the Gentiles. But is Israel going to make a big comeback yet? I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week to um, Romans chapter 11, and we'll pick it up in verse 11. Now, remember, chapter 10 ends with this indictment against Israel. They're disobedient. They're obstinate. Um, they've rejected Christ. They've, 
abandon righteousness by faith. They are pursuing a righteousness by works, something they can never acquire, something which is impossible to achieve. Um, they have uh, failed to achieve the righteousness before God that they so desperately seek. And then verse 1 of chapter 11 asks, what then, did God reject his people? And the answer is emphatically, no, he has not. God has not rejected them. He never will reject them. Even though Israel has rejected God, even though Israel has rejected the Messiah, God will never reject them. In fact, even though history, the history of the Jews has been one rejection of God after another, um, God will never reject his people. He will always keep a faithful remnant. One example of this faithful remnant, Paul says, is he himself. He, being a Jew, is also a Christian. He is one of the faithful remnants who are saved by faith. And then he adds, and there are many more. In fact, in the time that Paul's writing this letter, there are several thousand, maybe as many as 20,000 Jewish Christians um, throughout the world. Paul reminds the reader that God will never be without a remnant who are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Um, the rest have been hardened against salvation. They have hardened, they've been unwilling to see, and so the consequence is that they become unable to see. They are unwilling to hear, and the consequence is they become unable to hear. Even so, God has not rejected his people Israel. This is only a temporary uh, sidelining of, of his people. He has set them aside for a time, but he has preserved during all of this time a faithful remnant, and he will restore them. Now, you have to remember that God has made a lot of promises to the people of Israel. Some of them are conditional. That means they depended on Israel being obedient, doing what was required. But most of the promises that God made to Israel are unconditional. They don't depend on the behavior of the recipient. They depend on the behavior of the one who gives the promise. So God has made unconditional promises to Israel solely based on his own integrity, his own ability to fulfill um, his, his promise. So contrary to what many Christians believe, God cannot be finished with the nation of Israel. And for the obvious reason is that the, a lot of the promises, the unconditional promises that he's made, have not yet been fulfilled. If, if God were to not fulfill these promises, it would go against the very nature and the character of God himself. Because God had foreknew and preordained uh, before the foundation of the earth to set his special love upon Israel forever, he can never totally reject them as a people because to do so would, would uh, invalidate his divine promises. They would nullify his faithfulness, discredit his integrity, and compromise his love. But again, I ask this question because this is the part that we want to know. What part then does Israel have in the end days? What part does Israel have in eschatology, in the, in the folding of, of time? Now, are we the spiritual Israel, in which case there is no further part for ethnic Israel? Have we absorbed that? Or is there still a part for ethnic Israel? Um, is Israel, like nuclear energy, currently very unpopular, but about to make a very big comeback? Romans chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, uh, Romans 11, 11 and 12 makes three big points, and we'll see them recycle over and over and over again. So we need to pause to, to recognize the points, the three points that Paul has just made. First is that Israel has stumbled, but that stumble is not final. They have fallen, but they will get up. And Paul has made the point that the unbelief of Israel is not complete because God has always had a faithful remnant. There's always been those Jews who are also saved by faith in the sacrifices of Christ. So in this section, he's teaching that the unbelief of Israel will not be forever. They have stumbled as a nation by the rejection of the Messiah, but they're going to make a big comeback. Second point, their stumble had a purpose. By the stumbling of Israel, it has opened the door of salvation up to the Gentiles. Before, it was not open. Now, because of Israel's stumble, salvation has gone out to the Gentiles as well. Three, the salvation of the Gentiles will in time, therefore, lead to the fullness, the inclusion of Israel, who will then be saved by faith. It will lead to a time of greater blessing both for Israel, for the Jew, and for the Gentile. And Paul goes on to say, we'll see this in a minute, he says, this is a real mystery. If you think it's a mystery that the Gentiles will be saved, it's even greater mystery still that the Jews who have cast off their Messiah, who have disobeyed God, will in fact be saved themselves, that they will find Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, the first two points are obvious. They've already been fulfilled. They're obviously true. Israel has rejected Jesus. That's the first point. And that rejection of Jesus has opened up the avenue of salvation to the Gentiles. The third point, that salvation of the Gentiles is therefore going to lead to the fullness of the Jews, is not so obvious because it hasn't happened yet. You know, this, um, this will happen, but it has not yet happened. In uh, view of this, a lot of Reformed theologians have taken this passage to say that there will not be a future time for the restoration or the blessing of the Jewish people because the church has become the spiritual Israel. God has finished with the Jews and he's moved on. And they would say that since Christ has fulfilled all the types of the Jewish covenant in himself, and we are the members of the new covenant, God is done with Israel, he's done with the Jews, and we are taking their place. But you have to see that in every instance in the last 11 chapters where Paul talks about Jews, he's talking about ethnic Jews in contrast to ethnic Gentiles. So he must not be meaning spiritual Jews in this case. And so we'll come back around to that in a minute. Verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify, magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is a really fascinating passage. This is verse 15 when Paul references life from the dead. Of course, if you're talking about life from the dead, you, 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 he means resurrection, obviously, but... 
before you get to the resurrection part, you have to understand the death part, that Israel, like we Gentiles before salvation, Israel has now gone into this phase of, of deathness. It's a description of, of uh, their current situation. They are, they are dead to Christ, dead in God. So if we're going to understand the resurrection part, we have to understand how is Israel currently dead and how will they experience a national resurrection. If you look back to Ezekiel chapter 37, <coughs> you, you probably remember the story of the dry bones. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1, God calls Ezekiel and he takes him in the spirit to this valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many of them in an open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. He's describing Israel, a very dead, very dried up, no hope of coming back to life. And then God says to Ezekiel, will these bones live again? Verse 3. And Ezekiel says, I don't know. You know, tell me. And then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy his words over the dry bones. Ezekiel does this. He prophesies the word of God, and then the bones start to gather together, bone to bone, then sinew starts forming, then flesh, and they rise to new life. What he's describing is the resurrection of national Israel from spiritual deadness to life again, and it is a phenomena. It is such a phenomenon that can only be described as Ezekiel sees this image of the dry bones. That's the image that Paul is trying to incorporate in the text before us today, that Israel is more than just dead. Your friend is not just mostly dead. He is all the way dead. And you couldn't be more dead than having your bones dried up and scattered over an arid valley. That's the picture that Paul is painting here. Now, if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, then all of Israel's hopes are rest upon him. The whole hope for this kingdom of God is tied up into who Jesus is. If they reject who Jesus is, they are rejecting the kingdom of God. That means when they reject Jesus, they lose all that is spiritually meaningful in their worship, in their religious practice. And you see that chiefly in um, the Day of Atonement. It's a good example. The Day of Atonement um, is a time where they celebrate that the people are atoned, they're made right with God for their sin. What happens in the Day of Atonement is the priest comes in and two goats are brought in. The one goat is, is uh, killed, its blood um, collected. The priest takes the blood of this sacrificial goat. This is the important part. And he brings this blood in and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. Remember, I've told you many times, on the Ark of the Covenant, there's the wings of the cherubim. Above that is where God is visualized being. And he looks down and onto the, 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 the testimony, the law, the requirement of God for his people, and he sees our sin, how we have violated the law, which is written on the tablet. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, so God looks to the violated law 
only as he sees through the blood which was spread on that. So the blood, the sacrifice is significant because it says God is satisfied, the price has been paid. It foretells the blood of Jesus, which does exactly the same thing. The second goat is also brought in, and the priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and transfers the guilt, the sin of the people upon this goat, and then that goat is sent out into the wilderness to die. That's where the word scapegoat comes from. The, that, that goat is sent out into the wilderness to die. Jesus does both of these things. He provides atonement through his shed blood, and he provides the scapegoat in that our sins transferred to him and the, and the sins are taken away. So when Jesus dies on the cross, his blood is shed. He's, he's killed outside of the, the city, much as the, the scapegoat dies outside of the, the covenant group of people. There cannot be any longer any sacrifice made. The Jews today, when they celebrate Yom Kippur, it is not a day of atonement. No blood is shed. No sacrifice is made. There is no temple. There is no priesthood. There are no sacrifices. So the day of atonement is no longer a day of atonement. It's a day of remembering with grief how you have sinned. Much like the Passover is no longer the Passover. The Passover was meant to symbolize the blood of a sacrificed animal. Its blood smeared on the doorway, the, the, the top and the sides of the door, so that when the angel of death comes by, it passes over that house because a substitute has already died. Today, in the Passover, there's no substitute. There's no death. There's no sacrifice. There's no atonement. So the, 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 the practice of Judaism has lost its significance. It's just a symbolic uh, observance. They, they remember that they were the captives in Israel and that they were delivered remarkably. That's all the Passover has become to the, the modern-day Jews. Now, remember this symbolism. All of this symbolism is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who makes atonement for us in his dead, death, his blood shed on the mercy seat in our behalf. He's the Passover lamb. But it's become only a, a, a ritual among the Jews. They, they, they still practice the, the activities, but there's no spiritual meaning left to the activity. It's, it's, it's a, a, a ritual without its significance. And of course, all of this became finalized in 70 AD. Remember Jesus said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see these things take place. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Many of the people who were standing there at that time were still alive 40 years later when the, when the Romans sacked the city and destroyed the temple, ending the priesthood, ending the temple worship, ending the sacrifices. and in effect ending the, the, the very existence of, of Israel as a nation because from that time until this day, they still don't have command of their own country. On their temple mount is a pagan Gentile edifice. There are many people that have returned to Israel, but they are 
ethnic, not religious. I was surprised to discover that very few, a small percentage of Jews in Israel are even practicing Jews religiously. Um, they're ethnic Jews, but they're not religious Jews, either Christian or, or, or Jewish. Let's move on. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild, a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So in, in Paul's day, farmers would typically graft in a cultivated olive branch into a wild olive tree. The wild olive tree was, was hardy, it was drought resistant, and when they grafted in the cultivated olive into the wild olive, it produced an abundance of olive. Notice that Paul is talking about the very inverse of that. He's talking about taking a wild olive shoot, you, the Gentiles, and grafting it into that which by nature, into the, into the, the, uh, the cultivated olive shoot. A doctor, uh, I can't think of his first name, Paul Ramsey, Dr. Paul Ramsey did the study and he discovered that sometimes the ancient olive orchard keepers, arborists, what would that be, an olive, olive orchard tender? Uh, well, sometimes what they would do is the olive tree would start to uh, become unfertile, it would be dying. And they would take uh, grafts from wild olive trees and graft that into the the uh, cultivated olive tree because then it would, it would bring the cultivated olive tree back to life. It wouldn't, the wild ones didn't produce fruit, but it would keep the, the, wild, the cultivated olive tree, it would bring it back to, to life here. Now, Paul is using this illustration to represent something. You, by nature, don't belong to the cultivated olive tree. You were not part of the Jewish people. You are not part of the covenant community of faith. You are, by nature, just the opposite. And yet, God has grafted you in to the, 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 the real olive tree. He's grafted you in. Now, notice that this grafting hardly warrants arrogance or boasting on the part of the Gentile grafted in. What did you do to be grafted in? The action was all God's action. You were grafted in only because of faith. The primary actor here is God, not the Gentile being grafted into the, the, uh, the, the olive tree. And so Paul is Rome, warning the Romans that they should, be a, they should be aware of the arrogance and pride that comes in. And he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, verse 25. 
The Gentiles really have no reason to be proud of this because their salvation, their grafting in is a gift. It is not a work that they perform themselves. Now, Paul in verse uh, 19 imagines a Gentile who's arrogantly boasting, saying branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. It seems really condescending and contemptuous. You know, of course, God broke off the Jews. They grafted me in. Paul says, well, yeah, that's true. Verse, where are we? Verse 20. Yeah, it's true. The Jews were broken off because of their unbelief. You were grafted in, but you can't appeal that as any merit, any accomplishment on your own. They were, grant, they were broken off because of unbelief. We're still in verse 20. You were grafted in by faith, so stand on faith. And then also in verse 20, Paul applies the lesson. He says, so don't become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And the pride is a stupid and senseless reaction to what God has done in grafting you in to the covenant people of faith. Um, and besides, it's not you that support the Jews. It's the Jewish faith that supports you. The correct posture here is not pride, it is fear. Because if God did not spare unbelieving Israel, he will not spare unbelieving Gentiles if they continue, verse 22, to despise his kindness. If they stumble and as a result they persist in their unbelief, they, like Israel, would be cut off. That's not a hypothetical situation because we recognize that even in our own time, the church, the visible church, is full of apostate, unbelieving people. And there's a serious warning here that if God will cut off the Jewish people out of this net of salvation, he will cut off apostate Christians, apostate churches. There's a lot of apostate Christians today who reject the absolute inerrancy of the Word of God, the Scripture, they deny its cardinal truths. They, many of them deny the deity of Christ. The Lord's judgment will fall upon the apostate church as certainly as it fell on the apostate Jews. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is our, I'm going to come back to that. The fullness, the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That is, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So clearly, this section here is a culmination of everything that Paul's been talking about from Romans 9 through, through 11. Um, he's, he's introduced this idea clear back in Romans 9, verse 6, where he hypothetically uh, wonders, I don't mean hypothetically, I mean rhetorically, he rhetorically wonders um, whether since the Jews have failed, if God has rejected them, if God's purpose, his plan in the, with the Jews has failed because they have failed in keeping their, uh, their, their Messiah. Since they rejected their Messiah, has God's plans been derailed? And so he's speaking very clearly here. He gives seven arguments to show that God's plan has not failed God is still ultimately in control of all history. Um, there, here's seven arguments that shows that God's purpose has not been sidetracked by Israel's unbelief. First is that God's historical purposes have not failed because all whom God has elected to salvation have been or will be saved. That's Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. Secondly, God's purposes have not failed because God has previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved and that some Gentiles would be. Romans 9, verses 25 through 29. Third, God's purposes have not failed because the unbelief of the Jews was their own responsibility, not God's. Romans 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 21. Fourth, God has not failed because some Jews, Paul being one of them, have in fact been saved, Romans 11.1. 1. God's purposes have not failed because it's always been the case that among the Jews, only a remnant would be saved, Romans 11.2 through 10. Sixth, God's plans have not failed because the salvation of the Gentiles is now occurring and it's meant to arouse envy among the Jews and thus become the means for saving some of them. Romans 11, 11 through 24, what we're looking at right now. And finally, God's purposes have not failed among the Jews because in the end, and this is the mystery, he says all Israel will be saved. Romans 11, 25 through 32. God will keep his promises to ethnic Israel. And that brings us back to the whole concept of this mystery. How is that a mystery? Why is that a mystery? Well, obviously, because you could not come to that conclusion based on what we see today. You would not look at Jewish people, you would not look at Israel and see any reason by logical um, deduction or observation that the Jews would ever return to Christ you would deduce that they have rejected Christ and they have permanently been rejected by God. There, we would see no glimmer of a national uh, restoration. But what we can't see, Paul declares by revelation to be a fact. Verse 25, he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Isn't that interesting? Because that's pretty much what Jesus said. Uh, remember, he uses a, a very similar term um, back in Luke 21, 24. Again, he's t they're asking, the disciples are asking Jesus what it's going to be like at the end of times. And he begins by warning them what's going to happen to Jerusalem and Israel when the Romans show up. And he tells them all of this is going to happen again 
in the lifetime of many who are standing here. They're going to see this. And Jerusalem, he says, will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He uses that same frame of reference, those, that same uh, word here. Now, the, the times of the Gentiles could refer to the time where, where God is uh, ingathering all the Gentiles who will be ingathered. It could refer to the, the evangelism of the Gentile world. Um, but in, in any case, he says that this is that Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, will be inhabited by Gentiles until this time of the Gentiles, this fullness of the Gentiles is finished. There's a specific time frame after which there will be an ingathering of the Jews. This, uh, this mystery, he says, is, is a mystery that, that, that God has hardened in part the Jews now. And this hardening will remain until this full number of the elect, the time of the Gentiles, has come in. And then, verse 20, where are we, 26, all Israel will be saved. Now, <clears throat> this has been really problematic to a lot of theologians, including John Calvin. And John Calvin said, since Christ has come, the church is the new Israel. And anything that involved the promises to Israel as, a, as an ethnic group of people have been transferred to the church. And so they say that uh, the church today is now the people of God, and, and Israel, wherever Israel uh, occurs, always represents the church um, today. And Calvin appeals to Galatians 6, 16, when he says that... Uh, where Paul calls the church the Israel of God. But again, notice the context here, because a text without a context is a pretext. Thank you for the few of you who are listening. In the context here from Romans 9 through 11, um, in, in every case, in all nine instances where Israel is referred to, it is referred to in, in juxtaposition or contrast to the Gentiles. And so he's clearly not changing what he means about Israel in this text. In verse 25, he's clearly referring to ethnic Israel, not the church becoming Israel. He's contrasting them. And he says, all Israel will be saved. He doesn't mean every, every single last one of them. Rich likes to tell me all means all, and that's all, all means. But it, it doesn't always mean all. It's, it often means an overwhelming majority, a large number. Certainly, there's not going to be every single Jew that gets saved. The point is, there will be a massive revival among the Jewish people. So, when he says, all Israel will be saved, he's talking about a, a, all, of the, all of those whom he has called, whom he's elected to be, to be saved. But it will be a massive uh, uh, evangelistic roundup. We may very well be on the cusp of that moment where the time of the Gentiles has reached its fullness. And uh, we may very well be at the point where God's purposes towards the Gentile community has closed and his interest, his purposes towards the Jewish community, ethnic Jews, begins to be, be uh, vastly outnumbering those Gentiles who are, who are saved. Now, just imagine what that will be like. Imagine the moment when 
when the Jews admit their terrible sin in rejecting their Messiah and imagine the, the bliss that will be theirs when they recognize, when the blindness is lifted from their eyes and they recognize that Jesus was the Messiah predicted to them in their own Bibles, in their own old covenants, that it was Jesus that they were looking forward to all that time. Imagine the, the joy that will be ours as a church, a church of Gentiles and Jews united when ancient enemies who have hated each other throughout all history embrace each other by the commonality of, of the cross. Now, the point of prophecy has never been that God gives special insight to an elect group of people that everyone else doesn't see. The point of prophecy is always practical. The point of prophecy is always, has, is, is always to have bearing on how we live our lives now. So with that in mind, let's ask, what is the reason for Paul to reveal this mystery to us now? What does Paul expect us to do with this information that Israel has experienced a partial hardening until the full number of the Gentiles comes in? Well, it's not all that hard to find the answer because he tells us in verse 25, it's so that you will not be conceited. Verse 25 in the NIV says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Well, why would we be conceited with that information? We shouldn't be conceited to think that we, in our, in our arrogance, that we have superseded the blind, stupid, unbelieving Jews. And we are very inclined to do that. In fact, there's a, like I said, there's a, there are a lot of people within the Reformed community that would see that if God turns now from blessing to Gentiles to blessing the Jews, that that is a regression in redemptive history, that God's gone back to doing something that he's already abandoned. They can't imagine that God would bless, that God would do anything spiritual that exists outside or in addition to the church today. And since the, the, like I said, since the forms and the types of the Old Testament are realized in the person of Jesus Christ, they can't imagine going back to anything else. It seems to them that uh, if God does anything now with the, with the Jewish nation, it must necessarily mean going back to what he's graduated us from before, that we've gone from a spiritual people back to a physical people, that we've gone to a spiritual kingdom back to a physical kingdom, and they can't imagine how that's possible. Now, many others have, have followed in this direction, in this form of Gentile conceit, to think that God can't do or won't do anything among the Jews because they're hard-hardened and stubborn people. And God has abandoned the Jews, and now he loves the Gentiles and not the Jews. And how can we presume, therefore, to limit God on what God says he's going to do? If God says that there will be a day of future Jewish blessing, then there will be one. And we should be humbled by that revelation, even if it doesn't fit into our theological packaging. It doesn't fit into mine. But that's clearly what the Scripture says. The Jews started out with such great promise, but they ended with such disappointment. But like nuclear energy, 
which started out with great promise and is currently in such great disappointment, there's going to be a big comeback. And it will be very different from the way it started. Nuclear energy um, is going to be different than the way it has been in the past. Nucle the future of nuclear energy is in small module reactors. It's in using some uh, heat transfer and coolant system other than water, which is, you know, these huge reactors that we have today are all in water, and water is the transfer of the heat to run steam generators, which then turn, uh, turn out electricity. But the future of that will be in, in, uh, in, in metals that are melted down and, and used as the coolant and the heat transfer source. It's also in uh, a different nuclear fuel than we are currently using because the new reactors will be able to use the spent nuclear fuel from old reactors. You know, here's a solution to what we're going to do with all that radioactive waste. There's another bright spot for nuclear energy. It happened not that long ago, December 5th, 1 o'clock in the morning. 2022 at the uh, ignition, FIF, ignition, fusion, uh, what's the, uh, the ignition, National Ignition Facility in Livermore, that's what I mean to say. They, for a very brief moment, they managed to generate power by fusion rather than fission. For a brief part of a second, huh? They, they, they're, they're, they generated a, a fusion reaction as opposed to a fission reaction, which is what, what nuclear energy is doing today. So the fusion reaction, although it lasted only a, 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 a millisecond, produced more power out than it took to generate the fusion in the first place. The beauty of fusion compared with fission is that there's uh, vastly more energy in fusion and uh, it produces much less in the way of, of hazardous waste. And if, if a reaction could be maintained and harnessed, it, it would be world-changing as far as the as power that we are using. So too, in like manner, the Jews have been temporarily set aside. It's problematic. They failed. They did not live up to the expectations. But as a consequence of that, we as the Gentiles have benefited from their stumbling. And there's been a huge Gentile harvest of those who have been saved by grace. But the Jews are going to make a big comeback. Let's pray. And Sandy, I'll ask you if you come up and Connie at this point. Father God, we want to thank you again for your word to us. Help us to understand it, not try to force fit our theology into your word, but rather help us to look at your word and see how it fits into our theology. And in the end, God, help us to worship a God who is great, not a God who fits our imagination and serves our purposes. As we understand you more, may we worship you in a way that is more fitting and more delightful, that pleases you, that serves the purpose for which you have created us. Now, Lord, as we see these elements before us, we ask you to bless these elements. We ask you to set them aside from their common, ordinary purpose to a sacred, holy purpose to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask you to take these common, ordinary lives and set them aside for a holy purpose as well. We ask this for the glory of your name 
We ask this for the, the honor of Christ Jesus. We ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the